This is the Seminole Wars Authority. Hello and welcome to our fifth installment in Martial Matters of the Seminole Wars, Feuding Commanders. In its early stages, it was clear that the soldiers were fighting the Seminole. What was not so clear is that the generals were fighting amongst themselves. In this episode, we explore the animosity, anger, and asinine stubbornness that led two generals to undermine each other's actions in such a way that the entire campaign may have failed. This is the story of Generals Gaines and Scott. It is also the story of regular Army General Clinch and Militia General Richard C. Call. And it is the story of regular Army Colonel William S. Foster, who put pride in his back pocket and supported wholeheartedly the volunteer colonels appointed over him when he felt he should have had the job commanding troops. To help us understand the dynamics is Jesse Marshall, autodidact and resident expert on all things Seminole Wars. Jesse Marshall, welcome back to the Seminole Wars Authority. Well, thank you, Patrick. As we begin, let's recap where the U.S. Army was at the beginning of the Second Seminole War in Florida. That is, once the shots had stopped after the initial engagement between the Seminole and General Clinch at the Battle of Withlacoochee at the end of December 1835. Following that encounter, Clinch withdrew and returned his force to Fort Drain. Then things started getting interesting. The post at Fort Drain then became a center point of planning for General Winfield Scott's operation. On January 21st, 1836, federal government, President Jackson essentially, assigned Winfield Scott command of operations in Florida. In other words, superseded General Clinch. This obviously would have been perceived as an official notice that General Clinch had failed to remove the Seminole. However, General Scott attempted to palliate Clinch by writing that, of course, considering that a much larger military forces being raised, General Scott as a major general held the necessary rank commanded versus General Clinch, who was a brigadier general. So Fort Drain was the marshalling area for the right wing of General Winfield Scott's Army of Florida, which Scott appointed General Clinch to command. And in that time frame, General Gaines arrived at Tampa Bay with over a thousand men from New Orleans. They marched north, came up the road. On February 19th, they bivouacked at Dade Pond and built their own larger breastwork around it because Gaines had a thousand men. And Dade only had 100. On the next day, the 20th, Gaines's command marched up to the battleground and then gathered the corpses and interred the dead inside the breastwork. Unlike Major Dade's command, General Gaines' command was able to continue up the road and reach Fort King. Gaines reached Fort King and Fort Drain and drew supplies from General Clint and then decided to return to Tampa Bay by a different route. So instead of the Fort King military road, they moved down to Clinch's battleground. Battleground indeed. General Gaines got a battle right away, at the same miserable Withlacoochee River crossing as General Clinch had been engaged in. How did General Gaines manage this feat? When General Gaines's army proceeded south from Fort King and Drain, after drawing supplies from them, he proceeded south. He reached the river initially at Clinch's crossing place. I believe that was February 28, 1836. And when he was deploying his advanced columns along the river to look for a crossing point, the Seminoles on the south side opened fire, and quite a spirited action took place across the stream between Gaines's command and an unknown number of Seminole. There were some American casualties in that action. The next day, Gaines's force then moved further west and reached the point at Camp Izzard. 
where the ground was more open along the riverbank. Gaines intended to force the crossing initially, and he wanted to do so where the Seminole couldn't hide in a thick hammock bordering the riverbank where they could fire on his command very easily. We know after the fact that at the Battle of Wahoo Swap, there had been a Seminole village nearby that was heavily populated with women and children in addition to the warriors. Was there a similar case in the Battle of Camp Izzard? Well, the Seminoles had largely abandoned their town prior to the war. They knew they would be the target points of military operations, so they largely abandoned their settled areas and scattered into the wilderness. With a larger proportion, although not clear exactly, in the Wahoo Swamp and the Cove of the Withlacoochee, which is essentially a large swamp as well, along the banks of that river. What size force did Gaines face at the Battle of Camp Izzard? The Seminoles had mustered against Gaines, Camp Izzard, almost a thousand or more warriors, according to the intelligence gathered by friendly Seminole chief Black Dirt and others. So by the time Gaines's battle was being fought in late February, early March on the banks of the Lacoochee, Seminole resistance had actually gained a great deal of credit for achieving these significant victories. When Black Dirt provided the order of battle of the Seminoles at the Battle of Camp Izzard to the Army, it actually lists the war leaders with how many warriors were following. You had Jumper, you had Alligator, etc. Osceola is listed as only leading about seven or eight red sticks. Uh, and Osceola was considered a red stick among the different parties of Seminole. So in fact, when he set up Camp Izzard, Gaines didn't know how many Seminole might be in the area. But he didn't just sit on his hands. Gaines was sending notices to General Clinch at Fort Drain that if he gathered what men he had, perhaps four or five hundred, and he moved across the river, he could come up behind the Seminoles and work with Gaines, and they could entrap the Seminoles that were besieging Camp Izzard. This, of course, did not transpire. Gaines's messages back to General Clinch went unanswered. And in the back of his mind, he may have been wondering whether his besieged force would end up as Major Dade's had. Then he had a change in fortune, thanks to the Seminole. In the first week of March, the Seminoles began actually parlaying with General Gaines about what it was going to take to reestablish peace. But what I think we can see from their discussion with General Gaines, if we pay more attention to it, you can see that they wanted to defend their reservation boundary. They did not want to give up their Florida reservation. And they were willing to turn over the northern portion of it, probably the best portion, they told Gaines's officers they were willing to negotiate turning over everything north of the Withlacoochee to the United States and retaining everything south of it. This was a suggestion made at that parlay. Osceola was present, Jumper and some others. And that couldn't be acted on because the United States government considered the removal treaty essentially with law. So until the president of the United States in 1842, Tyler, made a determination to cease military action against the Seminoles to enforce that removal, the Army just by rote had to continue the enforcement process. So while General Gaines was receptive to the Seminole peace proposal, it was highly unlikely that the politicians in Washington City would actually accept it. Uh, that's correct. From his aide, Ethan Allen Hitchcock, notices, it would appear that General Gaines's view is to let Washington make that decision. Let's hear what they have to say. Gaines did not make any promise. He told the Seminoles, I can't negotiate with you. Because, number one, Gaines by then already knew that General Scott had been given the military command in Florida. However, Scott had very specific orders from the Jackson administration that it was no negotiation. It was to be submission 
It was to be the fulfillment of the treaty obligation. As these discussions were nearly culminating, there was another change of fortune, one that scuttled these peace talks. As those parlays were taking place, General Clinch actually rode up with his small force carrying a large amount of provender, including beef on the hoof, for Gaines's army and his skirmishers, his outguards, that actually opened fire on the Seminoles. The Seminoles fled. Clinch's men fired, the Seminole fled, and the peace talks were dashed. So what did Gaines do then? Gaines and his troops sitting on the river, the question was, what are they going to do? Many officers believed the Seminoles would remain peaceful until General Scott arrived to actually negotiate with them, but others thought they were just trying to buy time. Interestingly, by the way, yes, the parlay was broken up by Clinch's arrival on the scene and some shooting, but some officers at the time noted that the Seminoles essentially calmed down. There was not so much raiding going on after Camp Izzard, and perhaps the Seminoles were in a wait-to-see attitude as well. Recognizing that his moment in Florida had passed, Gaines decided, decided to pack up his headquarters and move back to his command for the western region in New Orleans. It was evident that it was impossible to keep 1,500 to 2,000 men on the Withlacoochee River so far south of Fort Drain and the logistical points. So General Gaines made a determination that he had done all he could in his operations, and he was going to go ahead and turn command of his force over to General Clinch. And the only thing General Clinch could do was withdraw that force from the Withlacoochee River back to Fort Drink. And then Gaines left the territory. Gaines was aware that Scott officially had command in Florida. And what did Scott have to say about this turn of events with regard to command of the Army's forces in Florida? General Scott arrived in Florida shortly after, and he was infuriated. He thought that Gaines had thrown Clinch under the bus in the sense that now, for the second time in almost as many months, General Clinch had been forced to retreat from the Seminole front line along the Withlacoochee River, and that Gaines had done it on purpose so that he could claim that he did not withdraw from the Withlacoochee River. Now, whether that was Gaines's intent, I can't say. This was a claim by General Scott. And Scott and Gaines disliked each other immensely. I will say that General Clinch, in subsequent court-martial proceedings between General Scott and Gaines, that General Clinch played no favorites between them. He considered them both excellent officers, and he was well-considered by both of them, even though they hated each other. How true is the allegation that General Scott specifically told General Clinch not to come to the aid of General Gaines? It's partially true. The court-martial at Frederick, Maryland in late 1836 goes through all of the correspondence between these officers in that incident. General Gaines makes the counterclaim that indeed, that comments that Scott made that essentially Gaines should work out his own situation were such that Gaines's view was almost treason. He thought, you know, never has an American general refused to aid another general in such a way. However, General Clinch was caught between two fires there. He's receiving letters, notices from General Gaines fighting the Seminoles along with Lacucci. But at the same time, he's receiving commands from General Scott, who's at St. Augustine and at Piccolata, planning operations as well. So Clinch was caught between two fires. A separate change of fortune forced Clinch's hand to decide what to do next. At the point at which he did move to Sally to aid General Gaines, it wasn't entirely of his own doing. The Florida militia in Alachua County actually had taken upon themselves to gather up the cattle, and they were going for Gaines' relief already by the time Clinch joined with them. When Clinch's force reached Gaines' men, they had been eating dogs and horses, and so they'd practically run out of food. 
So the soldiers of Clinch's command shared their rations from their haversack, and of course they brought the beef and other food. But it was clear they couldn't support a large garrison that far into the wilderness on the riverbank, so they had to withdraw, and that's the point at which Clinch was left holding the bag. The Scott Gaines imbroglio was a very ugly affair, but were there examples of this with other generals during the wars? Besides Gaines and Scott, in the contemporary literature, one of the more public feuds between generals relating to the Second Seminole War was between Generals Duncan Clinch and Richard Keith Call. Both of those generals were present at the Battle of Withlacoochee on December 31st, 1835, which was engaged just a few days after the disaster which befell Major Dade's command on the 28th of December. Those two generals, of course, did not know of Dade's fate at the time. Both were in command of independent forces. I should explain it this way. As the hostilities commenced, General Clinch was buffeting the War Department with requests for more regular troops. He stated afterwards that he wanted up to 1,200 or more. He also was given some authority to draw upon the governor of Florida Territory for militia to be mustered into U.S. service for his purposes. But at the time that he set out on his march in late December 1835 from Fort Drain, he had a force of about 250 regular troops and about 500 Florida militia volunteers had joined him under General Call. However, these Florida militia volunteers had not been mustered in the United States service, so they were, in fact, entirely independent of General Clinch's command. But they had, of course, under General Call, been submitted to serve under General Clinch during the campaign. The first confusion or disconnect between the two commanders came when they determined upon marching on the Withlacoochee River to surround and break up the supposed encampment of a large force of the most hostile of the Seminoles, those that were seemed to them to be most serious about resisting the emigration west. How did each general's proposed approach differ? General Call, a veteran of the campaigns under General Jackson in the southeast during the War of 1812, wanted to make a very rapid march with no baggage at all. In fact, something to the effect that with his 500 mounted Floridians, any of the regular troops who were all foot troops, if they needed to, they could swap horses and just keep moving rapidly with his men taking turns walking while some of Clinch's regulars rode their horses, etc. And by this means, he was hoped by call they could reach the Withlacoochee River within a day and a half. As it worked out, General Clinch brought along a certain amount of baggage, and it took almost three days to reach the Withlacoochee. The problem here was that Call had warned Clinch that most of his men only had four more days during their territorial enlistment. So by the time they reached the seat of war on the banks of Withlacoochee River, they literally, most of them had about 24 hours of service to perform. Secondly, when they reached the river, they found instead of a fordable stream, one that was about 50 yards wide with a deep and rapid current, a canoe was found, and the regular troops were being crossed to the south side of the river six, seven minutes at a time. This consumed about four hours. So from roughly sunrise to noon, it took four hours to get the regular battalion over under Major Fanning, and they formed about a quarter mile south of the river. 
in the interim, some of the horses of the Floridians were swum across. There was also an attempt to build a raft to carry over saddles and equipment, but that didn't work. General Call claims that he spotted the opportunity they required. There was a small rocky island that had some dead logs lying nearby, and with a certain amount of effort, they commenced trying to build a footbridge by tying the logs between the banks and using that rocky island as sort of a connection. And while that work was going on, establishing that bridge, that's when the Seminoles attacked the regulars on the south bank. A combat of not quite an hour took place, and of the 200-plus regulars that were across, four were killed and uh, over 50 wounded. There were about 25 or 30 of the Florida militia that already had gotten across under Colonel John Warren, and they formed a skirmish line in the woods between the river and Clinch's regulars and engaged in the battle as well, with Warren and several others of them being wounded. But in the meantime, the bulk of the Floridians were formed along the north bank of the river, and a certain number of them were being employed in constructing that bridge. After the battle ended, General Clinch's forces policed up their dead and wounded, and they withdrew across the river. So a significant number of calls for volunteers never crossed. They then proceeded back to Fort Drain, where the Floridians were largely discharged. And Clinch, of course, had to file an official report with the War Department on the failure of his operation, which was his primary operation to enforce the removal of the Seminoles. And in his battle narrative, he gives a great deal of credit uh, regarding the combat itself, but he doesn't really explain at all why the Florida troops in general did not cross the river. And subsequently, the Secretary of War, <laughs> Lewis Cass, reported in his annual report several months later, since he received this report in early 1836, he reported on it somewhat later, he stated that the report, so far as the combat went, seemed complete enough, but there was inexplicably no answer as to why General Call's Florida Brigade did not cross the river during the combat to aid General Clinch, nor did General Clinch allude to giving orders to that effect, so it was just sort of a mystery, and he pointed that out in an official paper. And General Clinch, by that time, had resigned from the Army, and he wrote a lengthy reply, which was published in national papers, explaining his circumstances and that he had technically no specific authority or jurisdiction over Call's Brigade. It's something he wanted to make clear. But also explaining that, of course, there was a river intervening between Call's Floridians and his regulars and those Floridians that were in the combat. And he states that he sent a staff officer to the riverbank at one point during the hottest of the action and during the crisis of the action, as it were, a staff officer named Reed, to the river with orders to General Call to cross the river immediately. And by crossing the river immediately, we assume that his orders were to just have the men swim over, get them over the river, however it takes, the crisis was at hand. Well, the Floridians did not do this. They continued working on the bridge, and shortly thereafter, General Call himself, who was now on the south bank of the river, proceeded up to the battleground and met General Clinch. And at that point, the, the combat largely ended, and they made arrangements to recross the river. Clinch's suggestion makes it sound in that explanation, that, and Clinch also suggests, states, in fact, that he was subsequently informed that General Call had given positive orders to the Floridians not to cross the river. So once that hit the national papers, 
General Call, who, of course, subsequently became the commander of the U.S. forces in Florida in the summer of 1836 and campaigned unsuccessfully against the Seminole himself in the early fall, culminating in the Battle of Wazoo Swamp. General Call, of course, was the territorial governor appointed by President Jackson and felt the need to respond to General Clinch's statement, the suggestion that he had specifically ordered his men not to cross the river. And his comments were to the effect that he would have been satisfied never to have put into print some of his comments, but he felt that he, he, did, he did not call General Clinch a liar. He said that perhaps his faculties were somewhat disordered, and then suggested that there probably was not a commanding general of a U.S. Army yet for that time that knew less about the details of what happened in a given battle than what General Clinch seemed to suggest from his various statements. However, Call points out that the deep and rapid stream was such that, I mean, unless the men were swimming champions, basically, they would not have been able to get across. And even if they did, they would have been literally disarmed by the river itself, wetting their arms, uh, their powder, etc. A significant number of their horses were on the other side of the river, but these were not cavalry, you see. These were mounted militia and volunteers. So they weren't armed with sabers or anything. They just had shotguns and fallon pieces and muskets. Secondly, he says that uh, when that staff officer, Reed, reached the river, Reed had been wounded and so did not give Call a peremptory order to have the men cross instantly, uh, but gave some suggestion of the crisis to which Call answered by writing to see for himself exactly what was going on. At the point at which he reached the battleground, the fighting had just ended, literally moments before. So in the interim, Call got back to the riverbank, and he says the bridge that his men were constructing was completed, and so the Floridians are starting to cross over in numbers. But now that the determination was to withdraw, what Call did is he says he deployed his command such that they formed two flanks on the south bank of the river, and the regulars fell back, forming a center line. So in other words, they formed a perimeter with its flanks on the river, and the wounded, the 60-plus wounded and the dead, which was a significant number out of the 300 or so men that were on the south bank. They were policed up and, uh, of course, obviously took a time to find all those men in the in the grass and brush. And they were first to cross back over this tenuous footbridge. So you you have a situation there where the footbridge itself evidently was not large enough to, it was only large enough either to withdraw the men on the south bank to the safety of the north, or to proceed the entire army to the south bank. It, it was one or the other. And the decision, obviously, between both generals was that it was necessary to withdraw, all things considered. So General Call, by most accounts, commanded the withdrawal, and they held their perimeter on the south bank for about two hours, during which Call says the Seminoles, scouts at least, were approaching very close to the perimeter, making noise, shouting, and they could be seen rustling in the brush. So Call, of course, is contradicting Clinch's inference from his official report that the Seminoles had completely withdrawn from the battlefield. They had while the troops were on it, but what Call is saying is as soon as they withdrew back toward the river, the warriors, some of the warriors followed them again. And General Call states that it's his personal opinion that if the withdrawal across the footbridge had not been preceded with a certain amount of skill and professionalism by both the regulars and the militia, that the Seminole scouts would have seen any confusion. And he has no doubt that if the troops displayed any confusion in the withdrawal, they would have been assaulted. 
And, of course, that could have led to disaster. So Call himself stated that he told General Clinch that uh, he pledged his life that the command would be well handled in the withdrawal back to the North Bank, and by and large, it was. So in the war of words between Clinch and Call, each of them marshaled witnesses, and in the various newspapers, many regular officers wrote interesting accounts of the battle regarding Fanning's battalion of regulars and gave their impressions of General Clinch's performance in the combat, which all lauded. In fact, even General Call said, so far as he could discern from what he saw, General Clinch was deserving of all the praise that was sent in his direction. General Call, from his perspective, he marshaled uh, Colonel Park Hill of the Florida Militia, who had been the adjutant general of Clinch's forces at the battle, and the officer probably knew as much about the combat itself as anyone, and he proceeded to give his opinion that either General Call or General Clinch, in his view, was deserving of a particular censure regarding the incidents of the battle, but it did seem unfair the suggestion that General Call had ordered the bulk of the Florida Brigade to remain out of the action when, in fact, they're essentially stranded on the north bank of the river, constructing a means to get across into the combat. In fact, during the withdrawal period, General Call had broken up the force that was on the north bank of the river that had not yet crossed. He had them deploy up and down the river, past the flanks of the perimeter on the south bank, so that if Seminoles had tried to attack the flanks of the perimeter on the river, they could be fired at from across the river by the Floridians that were on the north bank. So by no means were the Floridians sitting around doing nothing during these operations. In fact, at one point, General Clinch had inquired of General Call as he rode up at the end of the battle, you know, where are your men? And General Call said, they're at their posts. And of course, if General Clinch had simply reiterated that statement in his official report, then that perhaps would have prevented the Secretary of War from making a spectacular notice about the absence of explanation about why the 500 Floridians were not engaged in the combat, only 20 or 30 of them. But there you have it. The reason was a river ran through the battlefield. And General Call, of course, felt that it was a mistake on General Clinch's part to have relied upon a leaky canoe to try to cross uh, a force of <clears throat> the better part of a thousand men. And I suppose if we take the canoe's capability in mind, we can further see the conundrum. It took Fanning's regulars, 250 of them, about four hours to get across. If General Call's force had about 500 Floridians, which is the general statement, at that rate, it would have taken another eight hours for Call's brigade to get across, do you see? Call's point is there's no way his men could have entered the combat while it was being engaged because it didn't quite last an hour. These were two separate commands that were aiding each other, right? General Call didn't work, so to speak, for General Clinch. He technically had no authority over the territorial militia. They had not been mustered into United States service. They had been called out on the authority of General Call, who was the commander of the 1st Brigade of the Florida Militia, west of the Suwannee. And they had rendezvoused with the portions of the 2nd Brigade, which was the East Florida Militia, including Colonel Warren's regiment. And they had combined under General Call to protect the frontier settlements in East Florida. And insofar as that went, General Call volunteered them to act under General Clinch's command. So there was an agreement that General Call would 
act under Clinton's command. And so far as the information is given us, that agreement was never broken between the two officers. General Clinch may have been piqued that Call did not immediately cross the river when the staff officer was sent. But General Call's point is that even if he did give an order for the men to stop what they're doing and to swim the river, he didn't perceive how that would have done anything other than get, doesn't say it, but the obvious is a number of men would have drowned, and even those who got across, the weapons would have been useless. In Call's view, the only thing that could be done is what they were doing, which is constructing that log footway from the north bank to the rocky island and then from the island to the south bank, which, again, was completed near the close of the battle. And that's how the troops that engaged in the wounded and dead were, were carried back across along that bridgeway, that footway, as it was called, of logs. Jesse, when you come down to it, how much of this is General Call just having a disagreement on how to employ the troops and wanted people to know what he would have done? Uh, General Call's opinion seems to have been that it was a mistake of General Clinch's to have attempted to cross in the manner that he did. In other words, perhaps they should have built the bridge first or maybe two footbridges and then crossed. But remember, they were in a hurry and Call was telling General Clinch that he had only literally a day left in the enlistment of his men before he would have to allow their discharge from territorial service. And so perhaps this influenced General Clinch that, you know, we've got to get over the river now. There's no time to build a bridge. The bridge could take half of the day, and he only literally had 24 hours at that point. This comes back to General Call's criticism that would appear to be valid, that the great error was in hauling so much baggage that it took three days to get the column down to the river. If they'd gotten to the river in a day and a half, giving Call's brigade a full two, three days of active duty left, then obviously the time crunch would have been off, and they might have been inclined to construct the log footways before attempting a crossing. However, it is suggested by others that since the intent was to surprise the Seminoles in their fastness, that by crossing in the canoe, it was hoped that the surprise could be completed. In other words, with a thousand men in the woods cutting down trees and constructing a bridgeway, they're going to make a certain amount of noise, which was obviously going to inform any Seminole scouts in the vicinity of their position and their approach. However, the Seminoles knew of the troops' approach. That wasn't a surprise. The Seminoles were able to marshal about 300 warriors to attack the portion of Clinch's command that got across the river, outnumbered them somewhat. Perhaps it was a battle that shouldn't have been fought, but it was. The officers and men that engaged in it were given their full just due by General Clinch in his official report, and unfortunately, a certain censure fell upon General Call and the Florida troops that did not engage in this battle that should perhaps not have been fought. These two generals' war of words went viral, to use a term we use today. One may be able to understand this better if one recalls that in an age when reputation and honor were all for gentlemen, one simply could not be quiet when these were questioned in public view. And then things would get really ugly. General Call made a comment. He could brook all of the claims that anyone, including General Clinch or anyone else, wanted to make about the battle or the campaign. He could read their claims. He could read their public statements. He may not have agreed with them, but he could brook them. 
But when the suggestion was being made that he somehow had done less than his military duty, particularly in the sense of claims that he had ordered the Floridians not to cross, when in fact a portion of the command was actively constructing a bridge which saved the portion of the army that did fight the battle, he said that was too much. And that's when he started engaging in that war of words as well. And by the way, most of these debates were published in America's newspapers during 1837, which was a year and a half after that battle. And interestingly, most of the American public read of a dozen other larger battles in Florida since. So it's a really a curiosity when you're reading the newspapers of the time, you're seeing references to the battles at Wahoo Swamp, for example, in the fall of 1836, the somewhat successful action of General Jessup in early 1837 at Hatchelusty Swamp and the subsequent military convention at Fort Dade, where McAnope and other Seminole leaders ceased fire essentially for a time. All of these incidents, and then suddenly this burst of enormous amount of detail regarding what essentially had been rendered a skirmish by subsequent battle standards in Florida, uh, considering the men engaged in the casualties. But again, we have professional military officers with reputations to protect. General Clinch made a statement that I served my country on its frontiers for 28 years, and he was offended that Secretary of War Cass would cast an aspersion upon him the way that he complained about his official report, i.e. not explaining why the Florida troops didn't cross. And so Clinch gave his explanation, and it was offensive to General Call. And General Call, he struck back hard. He said General Call, as a youth, had served in the Creek War under Jackson, had made a name for himself for gallantry in battle against the Red Sticks, had subsequently been commissioned in the 44th U.S. Infantry Regiment, as a lieutenant and participated in the capture of Pensacola under Jackson and the Battle of New Orleans, etc., and was notable in these actions. And so Call responds to Clinch in this war of words, stating essentially, he says, yes, he served 28 years, 25 of them in peacetime. And during the three years of war that General Clinch had served, he was significantly noticeable for his name never appearing in an official dispatch. Since during the War of 1812, General Clinch largely served in areas that were not subject to British attack, and he, of course, consequently was unable to distinguish himself in any particular way during that conflict. So Call is slashing back at Clinch, and Clinch's claim that he had a greater measure of military acumen calls like, oh, are we so sure about that? So it was quite a striking little argument between the two. The rift between them was probably never repaired. Subsequent battles of the Seminole War were so bloody, particularly Okeechobee, by the end of 1837, that combat, the controversy from that one has taken the eyes of even most historians in the last two centuries away from Withlacoochee. And so there was a microscope placed on this. And the reason was political, because General Call, when he was writing these letters, he was the territorial governor. We've talked about general officers not getting along. How did the regulars and volunteers slash militia get along? There's some excellent articles and research by Dr. John Mahon and others relative to the, let's say, the knocking of heads between regular troops and volunteer troops, not just the officers, but even how the enlisted men in the different corps didn't get along with each other, etc. That's all probably certainly true. Wouldn't see why it wouldn't be. 
But unfortunately, by concentrating upon these incidents, what we're losing is the recognition that over a period of seven years, from 1835 to 1842-10,000-plus regular Army officers and enlisted men that served in Florida served alongside something like 40,000-plus Southern volunteers and militia. And the Florida Territory alone, federal government recorded uh, something over 25,000 individual enlistments. These various corps, when they're in federal service, they're all essentially whether they're militia volunteers or regulars, if the militia and volunteers are in federal service, they're essentially federal troops as well. Excuse me, let me rephrase that. Because militia are not troops. I'll rephrase it this way. That when the militia and the volunteers of the various states of the territory of Florida, when they're mustered into United States service, they may not be troops like the U.S. soldiers are, they may not be subject to the same regulations in the same manner, nor are they, of course, due the same allowances. They were not necessarily due uniforms, for example. The Okeechobee controversy led to many testimonials, but these were not as great as the number of testimonials from the Withlacoochee battle. What was the difference? I doubt there's a single battle of the Second Seminole War in which you have quite so many specific accounts of the combat as with Lacucci, so I'm going to estimate that there's about a dozen different testimonials relating to Carl and Clinch's newspaper feud that give their particular testimony about the combat and certain points that were being alluded to in this debate. Jesse, I'm going to give you a little bit of pushback and a chance to defend your position. What about the Missouri Volunteers in the Battle of Okeechobee? Didn't they have more testimonials about the battle? Yes, I should say so. Among the Missouri volunteers, I can't count the number off the top of my head, but when the state of Missouri had its examination of various Missouri veterans that had a court of inquiry regarding the Battle of Okeechobee, I would say there are probably about a dozen officers, so perhaps we could say it's about even. But here's the thing. With the Battle of Okeechobee on the regular Army side, we have Lieutenant Buchanan's account of the 4th Infantry, and we have the statements in the letters of Colonel Foster. And then we have the official report, of course. There are a few newspaper accounts by Missourians. And then William Cloud Jones, during the Missouri Court of Inquiry, gives a great deal of detail about the combat itself. I don't know. It still strikes me, having gone through the body of data collected by Clinch and Call, and, and the reason for this is, I'll mention momentarily, that that body gives probably the most detail of any of the combats of the war. And I mean that in terms of both tactical snippets and giving us very specific data about what company was doing what and in what order, whether it was in skirmish order and close order. The other issue with the Missouri Court of Inquiry in 1839, I believe, when they gathered their depositions, the depositions, when you read them, will name the man. The depositions are not written by the individual men, you see. The depositions are recorded. And one thing that I noticed is that many of them don't give you any specific detail different from the other depositions. In other words, they will state that during the march, the Missourians would dismount and sweep the hammocks, and then the regulars would chop a road through and join us, and then we'd have to go back to the hammock and get our horses, and our food wasn't as good as the regulars, and et cetera. And that would be repeated constantly. And so what you have is these men and officers being deposed about these key points, 
And really, only four or five of those Missouri testimonies give you anything that's really useful as far as combat itself at Okeechobee and tell you a good deal more about the nature of the battle and the campaign. There's actually an enormous amount of detail about all of the skirmishes in the Florida War, even some of the most remote and obtrusive skirmishes usually end up in some report or letters or another. But to quote Berkheimer, one of the early historians of the U.S. Army's artillery, the late 19th century in his history of U.S. artillery, he notes that the Florida War was long and there were a lot of artillery units that served in it honorably, and that outside the Battle of Lockerhatchee in early 1838, there was not a single battery of artillery to engage in the war. Individual cannons had been used in several combats, stage battles, etc., but only one action where an actual artillery battery of at least two guns and, and some rockets under Captain Washington were used at Loxahatchee, and consequently nothing new was learned regarding the use of artillery during the Seminole War. And so on a professional level, war did not advance American tactics particularly, since the troops generally had to fight in skirmish order which was, of course, contrary to the prevailing standard of close-order European-style tactics. Although the officers generally got along, there was something of an issue for Colonel Foster, as he continued to have volunteer officers appointed in command above him, based on time in their rank and not necessarily military experience. Well, that's an excellent point, and that clearly was a uh, professional issue. Colonel Foster, in his excellent Papers edited by John and Mary Lou Missall, his letters to his wife express a great deal of frustration that after a quarter of a century of active service, at the point at which he can actually command a brigade in battle in March of 1836, he is superseded by Colonel Persifor Smith of the Louisiana Volunteers. Colonel Smith, while he was an excellent officer and subsequently was appointed to the U.S. regular army, in 1836, he was a militia colonel that was raised a regiment of Louisiana volunteers and was appointed their colonel. And as a full colonel of U.S. volunteers, he ranked Lieutenant Colonel Foster of the regular army. Foster broke that, but a month and a half later at the Battle of Sonoma Sasha Creek in April 27, 1836, Colonel Foster was again ranked by Colonel William Chisholm of the regiment of Alabama volunteers. That really seemed to start to rankle Foster. Now, General Jessup was aware of this. At the end of 1836, Jessup formed a light brigade at Tampa Bay and specifically gave command of it to Colonel Foster to move up the road, improve the Fort King Military Road, uh, build new bridges over the Hillsborough and Withlacoochee Rivers, and also built Fort Foster and Fort Dade, etc. And Jessup was careful not to append to that brigade any volunteer units larger than a company so that Colonel Foster had entire control of that brigade without, you know, any more of that happening. We wouldn't want Colonel Foster to resign his commission, would we? So Foster showed strength of character by only heaping praise on either of the volunteer colonels, unlike, say, some of the generals that we've encountered. In fact, in both combat, the March 31, 1836 action on the Withlacoochee called Scott's Battle, in which he was commanded directly by Colonel Percival Smith, and then subsequently at Sonoma Sassa Creek, where he was commanded by Colonel William Chisholm, 
In both cases, she reported he had nothing but praise for both colonels. He had no complaint as to their capability and decision-making in those combat actions. His principal complaint was privately expressed that these militia colonels have literally been in active U.S. Army service for weeks, and he has to take their orders. But in the case of both, they had a certain amount of military experience prior, mind you, Colonel Smith actually had been the adjutant general of the Louisiana State Militia for some time, and Colonel William Chisholm had been a company commander of the 8th U.S. Infantry earlier in the century and during the War of 1812 on the Creek Frontier. So both actually had some military experience, just not the long service that Colonel Foster had put in. And I don't think there's any confusion when you look at the official reports. Colonel Foster was an expert infantry officer always gave everything, was willing to risk his life to serve his superiors in every case, whether in both those battles, the official reports by Colonel Smith and Colonel Chisholm have nothing but praise for Colonel Foster, and both of them largely attribute to him and his 4th Infantry Regiment a great deal of what success was attended from those combat actions. Because again, like most Seminole War battles, they were not decisive. The only thing that the military could do was determine who held the battleground afterwards. And if the army held it afterwards, they would call it a victory. But again, these victories did very little to bring it into the war itself. I would say that uh, from the first to the last, there largely was a accommodation. But there was, of course, some attendant confusion. We should take from General Call and Clinch's example, notice that from the first, General Call didn't necessarily have to obey any orders of General Clinch, you see, but he volunteered to serve under his command and then did so. General Clinch had no complaint about General Call's service under him. Again, the controversy regarded issues that were related to the two officers as commanders and their decision-making. It didn't regard their behavior as subordinates or superior. Also related to unkind words, appearing in print afterwards. Jesse Marshall, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us again for the Seminole Wars Authority. It's been a pleasure. This podcast is copyright 2022. The Seminole Wars Foundation. All rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminolewars.podbean.com or seminolewars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.